This is Fight Night, a new podcast from iHeartRadio. They thought he had robbed the deadliest man in this country. Guys who would not hesitate to blow your head off. This story from Atlanta, Georgia, has been reported for 50 years. But now, for the first time, you're going to hear what really happened from the people who lived it. Listen and follow Fight Night on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. It's Thursday, July 9th. A little less than a year before Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., he delivered it first in November of 1962 to a small crowd at a high school auditorium in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Eight years later, in the tiny town of Plymouth, North Carolina, less than an hour's drive to the east, a second grader named William Barber would become one of the first students to integrate Washington County schools. The line between those eight years and 60 miles may seem very thin and insignificant, but for anyone who knows the work of William Barber, Reverend Barber, the connection between him and Dr. King is anything but loose and insignificant. In fact, Dr. Cornell West put it as bluntly as saying that Dr. Barber is, quote, the closest thing we have to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in our midst. His work advocating to expand voting rights, health care, living wages, immigrant rights, public education, and LGBTQ rights even earned him one of the most prestigious accolades in America, the rare MacArthur Genius Grant. And the New Yorker called him an indispensable figure in the civil rights landscape and perhaps the individual most capable of crafting a broad-based political counterpoint to the divisiveness of Trumpism. His newest book, We Are Called to Be a Movement, is a rousing reminder of the power in every one of us to make change. This week, a special episode from Politicon, a free-flowing discussion with Reverend William Barber about race, poverty, and whether America is capable and ready to rise to meet the moment before us. And if positive change is truly possible in this moment, how the heck are we going to get along? Clay, good to I'm hear good. Your Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. This is incredible. Now, where are you staying these days? I'm in Raleigh right now. Yeah, I'm holed up in Raleigh, stuck inside, quarantined. Are you in, are you in Wayne County? I'm staying. Well, when we're not quarantined anymore, I'm going to have to have you come down and, and sing some for us. You're still singing? Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we do so. In fact, um, um, you didn't you do a gospel CD or something? Um, I did. I did a Christmas album that got classified gospel. Reuben did a gospel <laughs> CD. I'll bring him. We'll both sing. <laughs> <laughs> because I was even thinking about maybe doing um, this as we get close to the election. You know, I'm. We're doing. We have. We have anywhere from. 30 to 40, sometimes 100,000 people tune into our live stream on Sunday mornings. Mm-hmm. And um, we got we got people coming from 39 states and about seven countries. And maybe one Sunday morning, uh, if I had one of your CDs or something, I could feature it oh, and nice. have, have you sing. Or, but I still want you to come in person. Well, I want to come. I want to come in person. Yeah. You guys aren't far. I've yeah. spent plenty of time yeah. out there in Goldsboro myself. Yeah. And you know, there. our congregation, too, is... Um, uh, I, I don't know if you know, but three years ago, um, 
I had been invited into several colleges of bishops, mm-hmm. and I, but I did not. I, they're just real comfortable in a couple, so I chose one that um, is led by a same gender loving uh, woman, Bishop Yvette Flunder of California. Mm-hmm. She's a famous gospel singer, but also a, a professor. And uh, and I was consecrated into the College of Affirming Bishops. I was one of the few um, straight persons that have ever been. And I, I did it theologically because I'm so, so tired of the church thinking that we had to affirm persons who were same gender loving as though maybe we were the ones that had the problem, you know, a church being so anti-love. So maybe we needed to be affirmed and consecrated. And so our church here in Goldsboro, you know, is open and affirming, invites all people to the table. Um, it's been interesting in the South. <laughs> uh, listen, <laughs> and, I can, and, I'm actually sitting here thinking it was, I'm pretty sure it was Goldsboro where I was around the time, right before I decided to run for Congress in 2014. I was either in um, in Goldsboro or Princeton or somewhere around there, and there was a, I was at a Golden Corral, and I remember sitting there, and there was a same-sex female couple, and they were clearly a couple, and they had three or four kids with them at the table. And mm-hmm. it was clear that they had adopted the kids. I spoke mm-hmm. to them. They had adopted the kids. And all three of the kids had had some sort of mental or physical disability. And I mm. thought in that moment, you know what? Here are two women who have taken in the least of these, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And, and at that point, they were not in North Carolina allowed to get married. And, you know, that's never mm-hmm. been my number one issue, but it just was no. sort of indicative to me mm-hmm. Of God, just there's yeah, a, there's a level of hypocrisy, right? Yeah, the deep, deep level. Well, I did. I've done I, at Greenleaf. I had a couple come last year. They'd been in church all their life and had been told by one pastor because they're very serious Christians and and they're very powerful um, musicians and all. One of them is singer. I want you to stay, but I just don't want you to ever let anybody know. And they did it for eleven years and said they just couldn't do it anymore. And so they came to Greenleaf for a year. And then afterwards, they asked me, would I uh, do their wedding? And I said, sure. And Nancy Petty and I worked through everything. You know, Nancy's a good friend of mine at Pullen. She's mm-hmm. like my sister. Yeah. You know Nancy. Of course. Up yeah. in Raleigh. Yeah, Pullen. And uh, it was it was interesting uh, for some people. Uh, and, and But, you know, I had some people that were very anti, a couple of folks, even at church, even though they knew how open we were. But since that time, um, I've had some of them come back and and actually apologize and repent and and say, you know what, uh, we're gonna stop this foolishness of yeah. of disliking people that God made. You know, you know. And, then uh, just and, to yeah. think about the number of people who, over yeah. the past sixty years, have had to do yeah. that same thing oh, on, yeah. on any number of things that oh, yeah. Yeah. that we have realized. Wait a second, we we didn't behave correctly in the well, 40s right. or the 30, 60s or the oh, 30, 70s, right. 80s, etc. So, you know, it's it's. I, I knew that that yeah. would be, I, I believed, had faith that we'd see that day. It's happened a lot faster yeah. than I thought it would in North Carolina, oh, yeah. and well, I'm glad for it. But you know what? And, before, talk, I, and I'll talk about some of because I want to talk about the connections between, one of the things I've been teaching people is how to connect things like racism to all of that, because what we find is extremism is like, poison in your system mm-hmm. uh it, it may touch one organ but eventually it's gonna make your whole body septic you know yeah so 
But let's well, talk. I'm ready. I would love yeah. to. Will you, will, will you open? Will you start us out with a prayer? We need a word sure, right now. Sure, if sure, you don't mind, sure. a quick prayer. I know we don't have forever, but I'd love for you to start us out with that because, I, I, if you don't mind, that'd be great. Sure. Gracious and eternal God, we are reminded of your promise <clears throat> that morning by morning, new mercies we see, and great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. In the midst of a topsy-turvy world, in the midst of trials and tribulations we don't understand, and sometimes, Lord, we do understand, which makes them more harsh, we're thankful that you're faithful, that somehow you turn our tribulations into transitions, somehow you bring strength in the midst of our weaknesses, and sometimes, oh God, even in the midst of death, you bring resurrection and reconstruction and revival. And so, God, we thank you for your great faithfulness. Now help us, O oh God, and grant unto us a faith that will not shrink, though battered by every earthly foe. For we ask it in your name, and we believe it done. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You know, I, I don't even—I'm so thrilled that you're willing to, to talk to me here that I don't even really know where to start, but I want to start with something you said in the prayer there about God bringing— revival and and rejuvenation out of tribulation and death and i think about this last month that we've been through as a country month five six weeks mm -hmm. and i've asked a lot of people on this podcast in the last five or six weeks if this is a different time and this and if this situation if, if what we've gone through in the last five weeks in the wake of the death the murders of george floyd and brianna taylor um and several others if if this is different if this is the moment in american history where we will see the tide actually turn instead of people talking about the tide turning do you think that this one's different you know that is an interesting and heavy and uh, perceptive question for you to raise that. Now, being a person of faith and being a person who studies history, uh, I know that moments come out of years of movement. And that's one piece that some folk miss, that they often see the spark that lights the kindling wood and not all of the processes that place the wood in place, that put the kindling you know, in place to be split. And what do I mean by that <clears throat> is that what we know from our history is um, that every major, major attempt to allow, as Frederick Douglass once says, and undermine the work of justice has only served to embolden and intensify the agitation for justice. So, people tried to hold on to slavery. What did it force? It forced black and white people to come together. Abolitionists, black and white people. We forget that history. Multicultural movements for justice is not new. It didn't just happen a few weeks ago. It was, that was how the Underground Railroad was built. We have a civil war. What happens afterwards? Black people, former slaves, freedmen, and poor white people figure out all over the South, that they had been played against one another, that they'd been used against one another, that the plantation owners had actually made laws and made it so 
their sons didn't have to go to war. And when they figured that out, black and white people came together and formed Moral Fusion Coalition. And between 1865 and 1875, they passed some of the most progressive laws ever in the history of this country. It was called the First Reconstruction. It was a powerful, powerful moment that grew out of, you know, the pain. Uh, in North Carolina alone, Clay, they rewrote the Constitution in 1868. In North Carolina's Constitution, with black and white people working together, they guaranteed education as a constitutional right. We don't even have that in the United States Constitution. They guaranteed our work. That They wrote a preamble that said, we hold these truths to be self-evident in all persons. They didn't say men in 1868. They said persons are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, the enjoyment of the fruit of their own labor, the pursuit of happiness. They put equal protection under the law in the Constitution before it was the 14th Amendment. They passed voting rights that included all men, white or black, regardless of land ownership or income. All of this happened before, and, and and you can look at our history. It was the first Reconstruction. Now, there was a backlash. 1876, a man gets elected who loses the popular vote, wins the Electoral College, makes a promise to the extremists and the racists that he'll give them the courts, that he'll pull the troops out of the South, that he'll turn things back, that he'll cut taxes so that the government couldn't fund the promises that it made to black people and poor white people. Then there was you know, a second reconstruction. And there was a lot of rioting and deaths and that preceded it, you know. But then something happened. 1954, you get the Supreme Court decision. Uh, in 54, separate but equal is not the law of the land. 55, Emmett Till gets killed on August 28th. That, that was, and it was an attempt to, 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 to shatter the movement, to stop progress. Instead, when his mother showed his open casket and they and people saw his mutilated body. One of the people that saw it was Rosa Parks. Mm -hmm. And Rosa Parks decided in that moment, not only am I going to work for his killers to be um, to be uh, found guilty, they were not. They were acquitted two weeks later. But she also said, I'm going, if you take Emmett Till, I'm going after the system of Jim Crow. She sat down three months after his death December 1st, 1955, and the modern-day civil rights movement was born. And every death along the way produced more defiance, produced more uh, 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 agitation. So is this a moment, Clay? I think it is. I think it's a moment in which a lot of movements, from the women's movements, the LGBT movement, the green economy movement, the Moral Monday movements, the Black Lives Matter movement, all happened. George Floyd quickly gets killed, murdered, mm -hmm. lynched, if you will. But he it happens on camera. Let's not forget who the great hero in this story is, that young girl, right. 17 years old, that wouldn't put that camera up. She shows it to the world. People are dying from COVID unnecessarily. People are dying from poverty, 700 people a day before COVID. All this pain and then his death sparked something. And I think when he said, I can't breathe, his words became shorthand right. for what a whole lot of people are feeling. I mean, I can't uh, breathe. Yeah. There is a, there is a selflessness to what Emmett Till's mother did uh -huh. because, because 
she was not able to save her son at that point, but she was offering that moment, right, to so try to make life better mm -hmm. for Black people in America. Mm -hmm. um, there was a selflessness to what Rosa Parks did. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think there's that selflessness now amongst people who are, are, who are fighting for the things that are being fought for today? When I see the way in which Black and white and brown and gay and straight and young and old uh, and Jewish and Muslim and Christian and people of faith and not of faith uh, came together in the Poor People's Campaign. We started 2017 and in 2018 did simultaneous nonviolent civil disobedience in 41 states in the District of Columbia, offering themselves up to be arrested when governors, re regressive governors, would not even let us come into state houses just to present an agenda. I saw a kind of selflessness, people right. saying, I'm willing to put yes. my body on the line. When I see these young and old people, black and white, now we saw it in the first Black, Matters up ride, black Lives Matter uprise, but today, for folk in the midst of COVID to say, we're going to go in the street because we, we, we're not going to stand around while the state is killing us. When I look at the fact that uh, I've seen hospital workers, not only, you know, uh, and I mean, not just the nurses, but janitors and and orderlies, but people who are going to work, but then are also protesting meatpacking workers. You know, July 20th, in a few weeks, we're having a strike and a walkout all over the country. Poor People's Campaign, SEIU, uh, 1199, SEIU, and other groups that people are just saying, we have to care for one another. What I see happening in this moment, uh, Clay, is some folk are looking at it like this, and I've had this conversation. In any moment right now, we could be 48 hours from a ventilator and death. I mean, mm -hmm. COVID can happen fast or it can happen slow. And some people are saying, if I know I could be 48 hours from my last breath, then it's time to evaluate what I'm willing to waste, use my breath for. And many people are saying, if I could at any moment be taking my last breath, then I'm going to live as though that is possible. And I'm going to start using my breath, my energy, my strength for things that really matter. And so what I see in this happening is when I see folk in the street, when I see folk organizing, they are saying, we're going to try to, in this moment, something is trying to suffocate justice, whether it's the White House, whether it's extremists in the Senate, whether it's racist or whoever, and we're going we're gonna to try to make this justice breathe. We're going to try to make uh, 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 establishment of uh, equal protection under the law breathe. There's something trying to breathe that, you know, liberty, justice, freedom, uh, uh, providing for the common defense, all of those great principles are trying to breathe in the midst of this extreme situation that's trying to suffocate the life out of this democracy. And I do see a level of selflessness. Now, we don't know yet how deep it is, because the other thing we forget, Clay, is that when Rosa Parks sat down, they didn't sit down, sit down a week. Mm -hmm. or two weeks. They did it for 381 days. Right. When 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 folks... The boycott. You're water, talking about the boycott. Yes, sir. Yeah. The, and over against houses being bombed and blew up, blown up. Is when, it just our attention span now is not long enough to do that? What is it that's... that's I mean, well, Dr. King and those, and, uh, and those who led that civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, there was, there was a focus, there was a sort of a, a unifying message that, that Dr. King and his, uh, 
allies laid out. Why, why don't we have that now? Is, are we too fragmented as a society with Twitter and all that stuff that we aren't able to focus on certain, you know, all focus well, on the same changes? Or why are we not unified? Well, I think sometimes we're not. I tend to look at how we're becoming more focused. You know, I've been with the Poor People's Campaign three years and people have stayed focused. We just had an event two weeks ago. 2.7 million people showed up on Facebook alone. And we've been operating from the ground up for three years in every in the mountains, in the hollows of the mountains, in the Delta, Mississippi. And I see a certain intensity. Why? Because of the level of pain. As I said, there are 143 million poor and low-wealth people in this country, uh, 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 66 million white people, 61% of all African-Americans, and 700 people dying a day. 80 million people without health care, thousands of people dying every day because they don't have health care. They either don't have health care, they're underinsured, the 80 million people. And, and so what's happening, though, Clay, is the pain will make you focus. See, that's what's, what we got. What we have, what we're looking at now is the civil rights movement came into being after a long train of abuses, to use the language of the Declaration of Independence. And people had been focused at different times. But Dr. King said, there comes a moment when the zeitgeist, that's a German word, tracks you down, the spirit mm -hmm. of the town. And it's like the perfect storm. And so we're in another one of those moments. We know for a fact that history only changes, has only changed by war, economic downturn, pandemic, and mass moral movements. Well, all four of those things are, are collapsing right now. All four of those things are collapsing. You're great at you're great at staying focused, but do you think that that the country? I mean, I, I found a tweet that you tweeted a few weeks ago. Uh -huh. I was on Twitter. You uh, you said if you pull down the statues, but don't pull down the statutes, oh, the laws right. that support them, then we still have issues. Yeah. Do you think that there has been a loss of focus on the big systemic changes that are necessary? And, and well, instead, people have focused more on some of the band-aids. You know, Daniel's Middle School in Raleigh. This is this is stuff that pe a lot of people won't know, but you're you're familiar with Raleigh. I went to Daniel's. The name has been changed. You know, I I I think okay, I understand why people wanted to change the name of Daniel's Middle School, but did the school board pat themselves on the back for that and forget or neglect to address the issues of? the outsized number of black and brown children who are put in special ed over their over their white peers, the number of kids who are suspended from school because of the color of their skin more often, the testing inequality, like the systemic stuff that really will make a difference. Were those ignored in exchange for a band-aid of changing a name on a school? And 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 that that makes me wonder sometimes, just personally, if we have lost focus on the real systemic changes in place of some band-aid changes. And I, I want to know well, what let you me think ask of you, that. Was, was that changed because it was named after Daniels, who was a part of the Wilmington? Uh, yeah, I mean, the uh, correct okay, Josephus yeah, Daniels, yeah, who had, Josephus who had, Daniels. Yeah. Yeah, and, and right, and 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 I thought. And I'm not saying there's about. a problem with changing it, right? Oh, no, I mean, no, no, I think no. it's good, I, but I right. want to say, but, well, but, but did you do the real but. work too? <laughs> That's right. There's a but, and see, you're approaching this like a great singer because you know how singers are. You can hit a note and say, uh -uh, uh -uh, that's still not right," and that's <laughs> what you're saying. Okay, that 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 sounds all right, but it's still not right. <laughs> right, it's still not the thing. So. What I would say is, down through history, there have always been people that were focused, did the small thing, and weren't. You know, Dr. King got thrown out of his own denomination. 
because the church denomination wasn't focused. They said, just wait. Dr. King said, no. The 250,000 people that showed up in the March in Washington, they showed up for jobs and justice. There were others, many that did not stay. So the Bible talks about how there always has to be a remnant that stays focused. So this is what I think in this moment. I think there is a remnant that's focused and growing more and more focused. I think that when I hear BLM talking about a fuller agenda, when I look at the Poor People's Campaign and we list five uh, what we call interlocking injustices, systemic racism in all of its forms, not just toward black people, but systemic racism toward Latino people and First Nation people, and then the various levels of systemic racism that's beyond even police violence, because you can't think if you just do one bill on police violence, you've dealt with uh, systemic racism. Right. And then systemic poverty and ecological devastation, you know, four million people getting up every morning and buying gas, can't buy unleaded water. The, uh, the war economy, putting 54 cents of every discretionary dollar into war, and, and the war economy going mostly to military contracts, less than 16 cents into infrastructure, education, health care. And then the false moral narrative of religious nationalism that teaches if you're against gay people, for prayer in the school, against women's right to choose for guns and for a particular party, then that uh, means you're with uh, God's agenda. Well, we think, we teach that these five interlocking injustices have to be all addressed long-term, simultaneously, by a broad intersectional reality from a moral perspective. And it's not easy work, Clay. You're exactly right. And so what I agree with you, there are those, and I'm not sure who all are doing the statues and pulling things down, but there is a danger in that. Let's talk about that danger. Yeah, tell me that. There is a danger. Here's And here is the danger is that, number one, if you pull down the statues, statues, but you don't pull down the statutes of racism, like voter suppression, of racism, like de- resegregation and defunding of public school, of racism, like um, uh, uh, the man, uh, uh, prison as a form of the new Jim Crow, racism like unjust policies toward Latinos, immigrants, racism like the continuous in- injustices toward our, our First Nation indigenous brothers and sisters. And if you don't deal with poverty and how poverty is is un- a choice in America, it is not a matter of individual choice, but a matter of societal choice, then what you can actually do is have a moment when you think you have overcome something and not really have overcome what it represents. So what I'm saying to folk is, is, you know, monuments coming down, but a lot of people don't even know those monuments weren't put up right after the Civil War. They were put up in the 20s. They were put Uh up, you know, much later. The second thing I have a concern about that, as you do, is is that if, in fact, uh, these other realities exist, and we make the and we suggest to folk that if you are with us on a monument, that you have done something grand <laughs> in terms of dealing with race issues. Right. We actually give our adversaries a pass. It's kind of right. worse than a band-aid. We actually give people the ability to say, like the other day, Lindsey Graham said, Well, I'm against Trump and I believe NASCAR should take down the flag and I'm with Bubba. 
and everybody was celebrating him. I'm saying, uh, 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 no, right. hold on. That's hold, not the hold, solution, hold, hold, hold. right? That, I mean, it's it not, not, that doesn't solve the other problem. Solution, he's lying. <laughs> if you think that means he's not a racist, or and to put it like this, that he's not engaged in racist public policy, that's the same Lindsey Graham that's blocking fixing the Voting Rights Act. That's the same Lindsey Graham that wants to cut health care, and the same Lindsey Graham that's keeping black and white folk in South Carolina from having health care, and the same Lindsey Graham that approve, is approving judges on the federal court that are anti-equal protection under the law and anti-Brown versus Board of Education and protecting voting rights. So you can't get a pass. And what we have to make sure is we don't give people an easy pass. Right, but do you also think that there is a chance that it 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 helps gird up, I guess, maybe that's the, the, the wrong word, but but strengthens some of the argument in the extreme. I, I think about it, I'm going to use another very specific example that some people won't understand, but Charles Aycock was a, was a very sure. influential governor in North Carolina. He was very influential in the education world, and he was honored for that and was considered at, in, in his day to be one of the most, in some ways, educationally progressive governors North Carolina's had. And he was you have, there's a there's a high school right not too far from you that's named after him. He, however, was also a virulent white supremacist and was incredibly racist. Um, and I would argue that he deserves to have his name on a school less, perhaps, than even Josephus Daniels does. But if you tried to take Charles Acock's name off of Charles Acock High School near Goldsboro, North Carolina, do you think that it would a change the systemic issues in that area? And B, do you think it would galvanize the opposition in some ways that might not be the way you way people would want to spend that political capital? Well, I just don't even, I don't tend to think in those kinds of, of easy either ors. I think it's both. We've been saying for years it ought to come off, but because first of all, it wasn't that he was just a racist. Yeah, he was, was, he, was fact, he was pretty aggressively <laughs> white supremacist. Well, it, it wasn't even it was even that his his progressive educational policies were racist. Well, they segregated the white schools, people. Right. No, it was done something else. He went to white people and said, We're getting ready to pass a law that in order for you to vote, you have to have a certain kind of thing. Now, do you want your white children to be on the same level as black children? If you don't, let us tax you. Mm. <laughs> see, it, it's what. It, see, no, it, no, was, no I'm not going to disagree. His name right, should right, go, so but ra- I wonder. My point is, yeah. racism is always deeper. It's it's not just not liking people because of the color of the skin. It ends up being about economics and power. That's why systemic racism is about economic power, not just about who likes who, who calls who the N word. And let me give you a quick example of that. And then I would say that 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 I'm not even so much worrying about galvanizing the adversaries. I think we have to change some of them and we have to fight because I really believe there are more people if we show it to them. So one of the things right, we do... Right, Say that again. What, what, <laughs> Come back to that. we show it to them, how racism is targeted at black people, but it does a job on white people too. And I'm not just talking about a mental job or emotional. Let me show you. We When we go into places, I've traveled into the hollows of Kentucky, up, way up in the mountains, the so-called Trump country. Mm. And I found out some things that for instance, the majority of people under $40,000 didn't vote for Trump. A lot of people in those hills did not vote. Now, we might say the county voted 89% for Trump, but it's so many people up there that didn't vote. 
People right. forget that Linda Baines Johnson started the war on poverty in Harlan County, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Now, what this is what they tell me. Number one, they say nobody comes and talks to us anymore. That that and we and the reason is we say because Demo- Republicans tend to racialize poverty, Democrats tend to run from poverty. Nobody, mm-hmm. if you think about the last year, two, three election cycles could go back further. When's the last time you heard a whole debate on racism and poverty? Not middle class and, and, and tax cuts, but racism and poverty. You poverty haven't heard together, it. Right. Uh, or, or even separate, right? Either one, or, even if just an hour, one debate on racism, systemic, or that, we don't hear it. That is a dangerous devolution in our politics. It, we should be evolving in our narrative, in our conversation, because if you're not yeah, in the somewhere, narrative... Somewhere the Republicans yeah. co-opted that, that that message. And, and well, I, listen, I agree with you. I see that people in, in Bear Creek, North Carolina, where I ran, yeah. who live in in what would absolutely be considered poverty, don't ne- A, don't necessarily know that they realize they're in poverty, um, and B, don't worry about it as much because they they have been, they have bought into the message of... That somebody else's fault. Yes. Which is the Southern strategy. Which yes. is what, what, so which, who did which, it and why which, which and how do we fix it? Which one, <laughs> right. That was the backlash to the civil rights movement when the Southern strategy decided that we cannot win unless we control the South. But if we control the South, we can control the presidency. We can control 31 percent of the United States Congress. We can control 26 members of the United States Senate. And then we only have to pick up 20 percent in the Congress and 26 members in the Senate. Uh, in the other 37 states, if we can control the former 13 Confederate state, how do we do that? Well, Dr. King told us at the end of the march from Selma to Montgomery that every time there's the possibility for black and white poor people to build power, electoral power, change the, the country, the bourbon class, the aristocracy, sows division. So the white Southern strategy said, we can't use the N-word anymore because used to be in the South, who could out-end somebody? That's how you got elected. Right. But they said, we can't <laughs> do that now. I mean, this stuff is written down. It's amazing how Kevin Phillips and all of them wrote this stuff down. So they said, we're going to make the Republican Party the party of white folk in the South. And the way we're going to do it, we're no longer going to use racialized words overtly. We're going to use them covertly. So we're going to talk about tax cuts, forced busing, and states' rights. And we're going to suggest that the reason people are poor and don't have anything is because all of this money is going to social mm-hmm. uh, entitlement programs. When, in fact, the, 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 uh, and if they weren't getting all this free money, you all would be better off economically. Therefore, we need to cut taxes so that they're not getting this money. When, in fact, the money is really going into wars we shouldn't have been in. And ta- isn't it an effective argument? It's been an well, effective it, argument. It has yeah? been because Democrats walked away from the South in many ways nationally particularly and sometimes democrats have not taken on the issue of poverty and race and connected as i was getting ready as i was going to show you let me show you what i mean by that please we go all over this country and and everywhere we go whether it's in the mountains of kentucky or the rural south white predominantly white or the delta mississippi we put up some maps and the first map we put up deals with racialized voter suppression and racialized German. I mean, in, in the whitest county, we start with that. We don't ever run away from the issue of systemic racism. And then we overlay that map with how the states that are the poorest and the states that need health care and don't have it, the states that are, uh, are, 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 are most giving to corporations that pollute our environment. 
And then we step back from that map. And invariably, people will come. I was in a group of about 500 people in Harlan County, 95% white. A guy stood up and said, do that again. I showed, we showed how Kentucky, you know, engaged in racialized voter suppression and how people get elected because of that racialized voter suppression and how Kentucky's poverty rates and lack of living wages and blocking union rights. And he said, we've been played against one another. I said, and that's my point, that right. racism is targeted at black folk. Racist voter suppression is targeted at black folk and brown folk. But the ugly irony is when the people who use that stuff get elected, they pass laws that block living wages for all people, block things that would help the poor. And in all of these states, the majority of the poor folk in raw numbers, not in percentage, in raw number are white. When you begin to have that kind of honest conversation, you can be, people can, can, can come out of those uh, divisive silos. I've seen it happen. I'm seeing it happen with the Poor People's Campaign in a powerful way. And and we and that's the movement we're building with an agenda. In fact, I want your audience to go to www.june2020.org or www.poorpeoplescampaign.org and, and see the Mass Poor People's Assembly and Marl March on Washington and watch that coal miner from Kentucky and that black woman from Alabama stand together and testify about their pain and that white farmer from Kansas and the black uh, fast food workers from Carolinas standing together saying, we are building this movement together. And by the tens of thousands, Clay, people are coming together, but we have to have a grown up conversation about how these things interlock and we have to be willing to have it because that remnant is out there. That remnant is out there. What we cannot do is keep being stuck in a neoliberalism argument where among Republicans it becomes social Darwinism, give it everything to the wealthy and a little bit of trickle down. Among Democrats, it becomes just take care of the middle class and it'll come down. And we leave untouched millions of people in this country who are poor and low wealth. And they have the power to change Every election in this country, even in the South, a third of all poor people live in the South, a third of all poor white people live in the South. In the three states that Trump won, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, he won by 100,000 votes. 2.1 million poor and low wealth people did not even vote. When I talked to them, when we talked to them, many of them say, why? I said, why don't you vote? Or why did you vote Republican? They said, I didn't vote Republican. I didn't vote. I just don't vote. Well, why? Because nobody talks to us. I'm Dr. Wendy Walsh, host of the podcast, Mating Matters. I believe nearly every human behavior is motivated by a desire for love, sex, or to hedge your reproductive odds. I think women have this ability to plant these mental bombs into a man's mind. But the thing about humor is that the value of humor, it goes up. We're wired to reproduce. To them, it was a super female. It was a giant female. And they were lured into, um, into trying to mate with it. The science of love is fascinating. It's a bizarre form of biohacking, really. If you have the seven or plus gene, you are more likely to be involved in an affair, yes. That's where some of the research gets really intriguing. There's so many ways to be a human. But I must say, sex between three people can get complicated. In a nutshell, the Kinsey Scale looked at two things. 
sexual fantasies, and actual sexual behavior. Listen to Mating Matters on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs> 13 days of Halloween. A remote hotel. This, my friend, is Hawthorne Manor. The most unusual guests. They sound like someone you trust. Trick or treat! No, sweetie, don't touch it. Don't look at it. A tour guide that can't be trusted. Was it luck or fate that placed you here? We'll never know. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? I love you. Can you hear me? Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. Produced in three-dimensional binaural audio to place you right in the center of the story in ways you'll have to hear to believe. For full exposure, listen with headphones or AirPods. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to use this... I want to use this to shift a little bit to to your to your book because you okay. you've just released a book called We Are Called to Be a Movement, um, based on a sermon that you uh, that you gave not very long ago. Um, but you you talk about Psalm one eighteen, and and I just found the way you interpreted that powerful. Um, do you do you know it by heart? The stones Psalm that the builders rejected. Mm-hmm. The stones, stones that, that the builders rejected. rejected. Has, has now become, become the become chief cornerstone, yeah. and this is the day that the Lord has made. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and you you talk about, and I had never, you know, I grew up in a in a Southern Baptist church. I've heard Psalm one eighteen several times, but had never really understood it until I read um, your book and read your sermon. And and it kind of, you know, when I was when I was running, I was asked by somebody on my campaign why I became a Democrat. Why are you a Democrat? They're going to ask you that. And I answered as honestly as I knew how. I said, you know, I think that in 1992, my little 12-year-old, 13-year-old self knew somehow that I would be someone who might one day <laughs> need someone to help fight for me. And that I might be someone who was was it might be a stone in the in in the words of Psalm one eighteen that the builders rejected, and and I and I and I gravitated towards Bill Clinton and Al Gore in ninety two because you know they seem to be fighting for others, fighting for the least of these, and I didn't really know what was going on with me, but I knew somewhere there was something about me that that probably would be one of those least of these that would need fighting for one day. And I was probably one of only three kids in my middle, in my middle school who was very pro Clinton and Gore mm-hmm. in 92. Mm-hmm. And, and I told that story to my campaign advisor and she had a little tear in her eye and she said, don't you ever tell that to anybody. And I said, what? She said, it's a beautiful story, but people like strong people like winners. So don't look vulnerable. And I just loved reading your book because there's a whole bunch of things I pulled mm-hmm. out. But you you said the rejected must lead the revival for love and justice. And you talk about the power of being rejected and how the people who have who've been rejected in the past, Sojourner Truth and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia mm-hmm. Mott rallied together to to gain the right to vote for women. Nelson Mandela mm-hmm. was rejected, and he mm-hmm. uh, led a movement to take South Africa um, out of apartheid. And and you talk about the power of the rejected. And 
and I can't help but think, I appreciate the fact that I was rejected. You know, mm-hmm. I, I gained strength from it in many ways. And I think a lot of people mm-hmm. gain strength from being an outcast. Why do we as a country value and, and appreciate and only gravitate towards those who are strong and win and, and not towards mm-hmm. those who are rejected? What, what is it about us as humans or as Americans? Well, there certainly is a, a serious psychosis <laughs> because right. it's, so con- it's so contrary to our history, uh, you know, um, and you talk about religion. You know, the church had a civil war before the civil war in this country. That's why you had Northern Presbyterian, Southern Presbyterian, Southern Baptist, you know, and all that stuff. It was over the issue of how do we deal with the slaves on the one hand, but then claim to serve a God who made everybody. And I, mm-hmm. and I could go through that whole history. You know, even race is a false category. It was created right. after Bacon's Rebellion when black and white people stood together against oppressors. They said, we got to come up with a way to separate people. So we started looking at people through the, lism, the prism of race and separating people. Well, listen, you know, if, if I might take a moment just to, just to, just to push on this question. In some way, first of all, biblically, everybody we celebrate in the Bible was rejected. So I don't even understand somebody who's personal faith saying that that people, you know, that we don't want to deal with that. Moses had couldn't talk. Elijah had issues of 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 of, uh, of, of uh, mental issues of of what we call bipolarism. You could say, you know, Peter had his own problems. Paul had thorn in the flesh. Jesus, the man said, was a people a brand rejected by his own, a man acquainted with sorrow. Everybody in our history that we celebrate, outside the biblical history, that we celebrate had certain levels of rejection. You know, sometimes you read stories about George Washington and it talks about what he wasn't and yet what he became. Mm-hmm. Uh, you read stories about, you know, Harriet Tubman who had, uh, you know, had um, epilepsy, but look at what she became. Our greatest presidents, you know, Lincoln had his issues. Franklin Delano Roosevelt had polio, was in a wheelchair, right. but he served longer than any others. Kennedy had his problems. And so so it's sad that we have come to a point, some people have, where they look at people by the, uh, by the, they don't look at them based on the content of their character, but they look at them in other ways. And sometimes it has been, based on their physical strength or their perceived strength. And, and you know, that leads to what we have now, narcissism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that leads to what we na- have now. Well, I, can't, I, I, can't help but, I can't help but say that I highlighted the section about Caesar uh, in the yeah, book right. in <laughs> and the, the book, similarities right. to, to Caesar. <laughs> you didn't say yeah. it in the book, but I thought it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, Caesar loved to be a tower. Caesar loved to put his name on tower. Caesar wanted his name on everything. Caesar controlled the Senate. Caesar thought his money got him away. Caesar would kill and destroy his enemies. Caesar loved to mess around with women. Why do we hear this on Sunday well, and then forget it on Monday? Well, sometimes we don't even hear it on Sunday. That's oh, part fair. of the problem. But 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 I you mean, know what? There are but, a lot but, of people, yeah, the evangelicals yeah. who have who have really been the movement on the Republican side, at least, have been the base. They hear this stuff about Caesar on Sunday and Wednesday night, mm-hmm. maybe, and they. There, for some reason, it's not connecting. Well, Why do you think that is? How has the Repu- well, how has the Republican Party been able to co-opt religion in that way? Well, when I listen to Jeffers out of Texas, 
that's not what he's preaching on Sunday. The one that, <laughs> he actually told the president that he was God called to be on the wall. I mean, I'm like, how do you get that out of the Bible? The Bible said Jesus tore down the wall. So we have a lot of non-gospel going on. And that goes, traces all the way back to slave religion. That That's why Frederick Douglass said, I love the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I hate the religion of the slave master. So we have to understand that there's a lot of false religion being preached in uh, false Christianity in, in churches. Uh, you got to go back to uh, Kevin Hughes's book that talks about the purchasing of the American pulpit and how after uh, right in the middle of the New Deal, the business community went to a guy out of uh, California and uh, Feinfeld was his name and, 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 and said, look, can you help us? We need somebody that can take over these pulpits because they're speaking the social gospel and talking about social change. And he said, give me enough money and, and I'll go out here and do it. And in seven years, he had something like 19,000 pulpits basically preaching this false Calvinism that he came up with. If you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. So if you're good, you're rich and wealthy. If you're bad, it's because you're not living right. It has nothing to do with the system. And then that comes down to the marble majority and to all this other stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a history to it, Clay. But And it's a deep history. But it's if that has been indoctrinated, history. if it's been, yeah, mm -hmm. deep, so it's been indoctrinated yeah, in people, right. how do we, I mean, I, you, you well, I people, believe make people don't, well, listen, I, <laughs> I, I have faith also, but I, yeah. I have to say over the last several years, I've, I've been incredibly concerned. And I mean, some people don't know about you. You moved from Indiana, I think, right, to one of the, one of the, your family moved when you were young well, to yeah, one of the smallest day. and poorest counties That's in right. Wake County, in North Carolina, That's to right. specifically to integrate the schools and you were what, were right. you the first kindergarten class to be integrated in Washington County? No, 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 no. I was we were I went to the I was in that first class in the second grade. I actually went to segregated um uh kindergarten. Okay. And my mother and father started out teaching at the segregated uh public school in Washington County. But but let me just say this. Let me quickly couple of things cuz see I, a lot of the terms we have, have used really have been misused by the by the media. So I'm an evangelical. Mm -hmm. okay. I'm not. A, I'm not a white evangelical, and I'm not an evangelical who who believes it, who preaches that gospel of segregation and separation. Not a I fundamentalist. In the, uh, I, well, even if you say what, and I say, well, what are your fundamentals? Because if okay. your fundamentals are good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, I'm also a conservative because I want to conserve the 2,000 scriptures more than any other text in the Bible that say how we treat the poor, the least of these, are the major things of our faith. The only sin that's greater than mistreatment of the poor, the least of these, is idolatry, self-worship. What was the line you used at the Democratic convention? Um, oh. That people, well, the one, oh my God, I love it, and I can't think of it right now. Where you said people are talking about what's in, um, oh God, uh, I'm gonna have to find it. We're gonna have to find it and play it on here. Um, but, but where you talk about people don't, they're talking about the the Bible, but not actually living it. Essentially, yeah, I said we we talk so much about what God says so little, and so little about what God says so That's, much. But yeah. but hasn't that been the problem? And yeah. but, but here's my point. Here's my point. I, there's a whole group of Christians now, call themselves red letter Christians, who are recovering from white evangelicalism by the thousands. We have had in the Poor People's Campaign just recently, we had eight, 20 different denominational groups that came together 
Jews, Muslims, Christians, and Christians, large bodies swaths of folk. In this moment of pain, it is really forcing some people to take inventory. If you, if you, if the statistics and research tell us white evangelicalism is going down among young people. Does that not worry you that young people are being, you know, pulled away or pushed away from the church because of some of that evangelic well, white evangelicalism, it, and and they're losing their faith because of it. They're it they're, they're missing out on God because they are turned off by some of the messages of those pastors in those churches. It does. I mean, I've had people come to me and I speak somewhere and a young person came to me one time and said at this rally, it was at a Mar Monday rally, I came back to the Lord. And I said, what do you mean? They said, I had left because a preacher had told me so many times who I wasn't because I happened to be gay. I was in <laughs> Kentucky and a young lady was said she came and hugged and cried on my shoulder and said, you know, how do you how, how do you love your parents who you admire them for what they've done for you? but they're also your enemy because they tell you to hate black people and queer people and they don't realize you're queer and they don't realize you love black people. And so she said she left the church, but in this movement, the Poor People's Campaign, and hearing a clergy person talk and through the scripture, she found faith again. So I think something fundamental is happening. But but if you asked me earlier uh, uh, on this question of um, uh, uh, um, uh, about your story, and weakness. See, when I talk about rejected in that book, what I'm saying is there's power when yeah. the rejected connect. Because one thing, being rejected should produce a deeper compassion in you. Being rejected should put should produce a deeper commitment to see the, the situations change that cause the rejection. And what we know is that, as I said in the book, when the rejected get together, if we can figure this out, and this is something we teach in the movement, that the same people that, for instance, produce racist voter suppression are the same people against living wages. They're the same people against health care, same people against public education, same people against gay people, same people against women. So if they are cynical enough to be together, we ought to be smart enough to come together. And in that part, in that doing that, there's actually more of us, right? And in that doing that, we might even redeem some of them. But we can produce a revival. There's a, there's a great scripture in the Bible that Martin Luther King used to quote, let justice roll down like waters, righteous like a mighty stream. But Clay, before you get to that, the scriptures above it says this, God says, I'm looking for a remnant that will go in the street and cry and lament and say, not on my watch, not now. This is in the Message Bible. And then it says, and when I hear them crying and they shut down the factories and shut down the streets and shut down the stores, then I, God, will make my visit. Then comes the scripture, let justice roll down like water. So it's been righteous folk who have faced rejecting, rejection, who have come together down through history that have always made this country shift. There's always been that kind of coming together that has made the country shift. And that's what I was trying to get at. We are called to be a movement. We're not called to wait on Clay Aiken to make the movement or a particular presidential candidate. The people who have suffered rejection under the system are the ones required both by faith and by our founding documents. Because even the Declaration of Independence says, 
when there has been a long train of abuses, it is the right of the people to alter or to throw off such government. That's the, that's the Declaration of Independence. And, and what's the long train of abuses? When, when the policies are against life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Whenever policies, and it's been a long train of abuses, the Declaration of you don't do it quickly. But when there's been a long train of abuses, well, there's been a long train of abuses against poor people. There's been a long train of abuses abuse against black people and Latino people and gay people and women. So we actually have biblical moral authority and founding document authority. To Why didn't you go into politics? Well, I believe I am. I well, just not I'm not, not elected partisan father. And actually, you know, you should I don't know if you know my story, but I worked, you know, for three years as director of human relations uh, for the state of North Carolina under Jim Hunt. I worked in political campaigns. I went to school, thought I was going to school to be a lawyer. That's what I intended to do. Um, I um, ran for mayor on a in, in Goldsboro. Uh, on a write-in ballot because it was this uh, I wasn't was very concerned about what was happening and got forty six seven percent of the vote in the write-in ballot with write-in but, mm-hmm, in the write-in <laughs> ballot five, seven days before the election. By the way. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you know I I believe in this moment that there needs to be a prophetic social consciousness that is deeply political but not partisan. Now, that doesn't mean we don't know who to vote for, but it means that we loose ourselves from the puny categories of left versus right and Democrat versus Republican and and, and conservative versus liberal, and we start really drilling down on what's right versus wrong. And we mobilize from the bottom, and we change the narrative by changing the narrators. That's what the Poor People's Campaign is doing. And we build power. We change the narrative by changing the narrators. We're going to get that uh, printed on a T-shirt somewhere. And we bring people <laughs> together, and we build power from the bottom, and we use that power. So we're produce, we're releasing a study. I'll come back on your show and talk about it. And this study we just had Columbia University do, and it shows that if you just were to uh, organize 15% of poor and low-wealth people in this country, even in the South, around an agenda, not a personality, around an agenda, then you could fundamentally transform every election in this country. Well, I want to use that to, I know, I know we don't have you forever, I wish we did, but I want to use that to focus on my last little topic here, because at the end of the book, you do actually, um, and, and again, for anyone who's listening, I, it's a quick read, We Are Called to Be a Movement, um, you, it's I, I've read it twice already, um, wow. so you can you should definitely Thank pick you. it up. But at the end, you you lay out the fundamental pr- principles of the Poor People's Campaign, which you've talked a lot about here. And I want to and I want to focus on. I think there are eleven or twelve of them, but I want to focus on one or two, um, where you talk on number number seven. Uh, you specifically say we aim to shift the distorted moral narrative, often promoted by religious extremists in the nation, from away from issues like prayer in school, abortion, and gun rights to one that is concerned with how our society treats the poor, those on the margins, etc. And then I'll skip over a little bit. It says, with the desire for peace, love, and harmony within and among nations. And that's my favorite one of the of the 12. They're all worthy. But, but I mean, this isn't—the Poor People's Campaign is not a political 
movement. And and you you said doesn't mean you don't know who to vote for, but you're you're it's seeking to try movement. to right. It's not a partisan movement. You're seeking to try to get people to focus on. It sounds like in number seven to me to focus less on the the how do you want to call them the divisive social um, wedge issues that have been brought up in the last. 20, 30 years in politics and focus really more on the on, on how society treats the poor and those on the margins, yeah. but very specifically poverty. And I mean, if nothing else, get the book and, and read the section where you talk about your stories and, and the experiences you had meeting people as you've traveled around the country and very specific stories, which are incredibly powerful that people should read. But, but I really want to focus here at the end in that peace, love, and harmony part, because, you know, this whole podcast was started by Politicon to try to figure out how we're going to get along. <laughs> and <laughs> and a lot of the stuff we've talked about has, even though I don't believe personally it should be controversial, it is very controversial. Uh, identity politics, uh, some people call it, has become controversial. So how do you do the things that you're talking about, shifting away from those wedge issues and talking about the issues that are the statutes um, and still do it with that sort of peace, love and harmony and not have the controversy um, that, that gets thrown around when, when you try to focus on, you know, laws and, and the poor and poverty. Well, you know, love is very controversial. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I follow a guy that, I follow a guy that got killed for loving people. And all of my yeah. heroes were threatened with death because they love people. I've had death threats for simply fighting for health care. You know, um, I could tell you some stories. You know, the first I want to stop you and have you go back because what you said when you, I want to make sure everyone understood what you said when you said you followed a guy who got killed for loving people. You're talking about Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, he didn't do anything but love folk and, and, and stand up to the powers that be and the people that they left on the side of the road, he healed. Uh, the children they didn't care about, he brought in. Um, he questioned, you know, he said that every nation would be judged by how it treated the poor and the sick and the hungry and the immigrant and the prisoner. And for that, he was crucified as a rabble rouser, as a disturber of the peace. And the first time I got arrested in the General Assembly with seven people, three white, three, four, or four of us black clergy person was simply standing up in the, in the, in the, uh, um, um, atrium uh, area atrium area well not, actually no it was inside where they were having um the house was meeting tom tillis oh. was presiding and okay. they had just were working on a budget that was going to just destroy resources for poor low-income children not black children just poor low-income children and he refused to meet with us so we went in and we stood up and said what does the lord require and he said get them out of here they're in, they're, they're in my house and then that, that <laughs> next day, I got a death threat that said you'll be dead by Christmas. And and I'm saying, and it and, and basically referenced that question, daring to challenge, uh, you know, this oppression. So love is controversial, but truth is freeing. So you have to have love and truth. You have to have love and justice. Dr. King said, just love without justice is weak. Justice without love is raw and hard and bracing. So you have to put really truth, love, and justice together. And then the peace we seek is not the absence of of, of, of challenge, as, as King also said. But as I like to say, it's not just everything being quiet and smooth. It's crooked places being smoothed out. 
after being straightened now. That's peace. And rough places being made smooth. It, that's peace according to the scriptures. And peace is seeing transformation in the society. So what did we do? What way we try to operate is number one, we've adopted nonviolence as our way. I don't like when folks say that people have a peaceful movement. Because I was arrested in the state legislature and they claim I broke the peace for simply saying people needed health care. And and they said I was too loud. So I asked what we it was two about a hundred of us. We said, Well, what is the decimal level for free speech? And they couldn't tell us. <laughs> they said, We just don't like what you're saying. And so I got charged and convicted <laughs> with, you know, with basically disorderly conduct uh, and violating, uh, 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 you know, the peace. So it's really not peace versus versus uh, uh, violent. It's violent versus nonviolent because nonviolent. And you very, very clearly say the Poor People's Campaign very clearly says number twelve. Violent tax, violent tactics, and actions will not be tolerated. No, I mean, it's not a violent. We don't need yeah. them. Right. Because we're going to be, we, our way is strong and our way is clear, but it's not going to be used to tactics of violence because you cannot defeat the empire when you become the empire and use the empire's tactics. That's what we believe. And so we're willing to, to engage. Now, that means sometimes we get arrested. That means we do things that are very strong. Um, uh, people may call it weak, but we call it strength because we're standing on our principles. But the other thing, Clay, is we did two things first. Number one, if you're going to be loud, be right. So we spent a long time doing an audit of America. I didn't know there were 140 million poor and low-wealth people. I thought the government would tell us the truth when they said it wasn't but 39 million. But when we really did the, look, it may be 39 people, but 39 million people below the poverty level, but right. it's actually 140 million But the poverty level's not in the people. right place. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so we did uh, we did an audit. And then when we did the audit, Clay, we disaggregated it so that we talked about every segment of the community so no one could say, well, we were only talking about black poor folk or Latino poor folk. We broke it down. Then the second thing is we found the money. We did a budget. We got some of the best economists to do a budget. We met with economists like Joseph Sticklitz, who told us the real cost in this culture is the cost of inequality, not the cost to fix it. The cost to fix it is less than the cost of it. Yeah, so what did you say if we canceled one military contract for one year? If uh, Boeing, if we canceled one military contract from Boeing, remember we put almost $800 billion a year into defense. If we cut our defense budget in half right now, we would still have more money than North Korea, Iraq, Iran, and China combined. But if we just took one military contract for one year from Boeing, we could fund, fully fund all 14 states in the Affordable Care Act that have refused to accept it. Mm-hmm. Just one. And, and, and you remember, I think it was Dr. King said, any nation that's, that, that, that where the military begins to determine everything it does is on the spiral toward death. And Eisenhower, a Republican, Eisenhower, a five. Well, now I don't know general. if he'd be one of those today, but <laughs> well, well, but but then I'm judging by what he said. Then he said when he was leaving office that we had to be mindful and stop the the congressional military industrial complex. Now they made him take out the word congressional, and he said military industrial complex. But his original was the mil- congressional military industrial complex. So. Going back to your thing, you have to you have to do your your your, your audit. Facts so are stubborn things. Facts, yeah, facts. Then you have to have answers. 
You can't just curse the darkness. This is why we did a budget and we've done a platform and it was done with poor and low wealth people. The other thing is we don't go out here and speak on behalf of people. Sometimes you, the way you change the way people respond to something is make them see themselves. So at our mass poor people's assembly, you, we didn't have a lot of people speaking for people. We let people speak for themselves, tell their story and then make their demand. And that's what a lot of people have said to us, even people who didn't agree at first, said, wait a minute, that looks like me. That looks like my cousin. We said, that's the point. We're trying to show you what people have chosen not to show you. And with political rhetoric, what they do is they suggest to you it's those people. When in fact, it's you, it's your mm -hmm. family, it's your community. And then, you know, the, the last thing is, you know, a good dose of, of the way we do the moral language. We either use the moral language of our deepest religious values, but because our movement recognizes people who are not of faith, we also use the moral language of the Constitution. And plus, we would use it even if we were just people of faith only. But one thing that does, Clay, is when people come to us and say, we want to talk about, you You should be focused on just, you know, a woman's right, to not shouldn't have the right to choose, and you should be focused on being against gay people. One of the things I often do, I have done it, is I'll hand somebody a Bible and say, show, show me all the scriptures that talk about that, because I've already got all the scriptures that talk about how we treat the poor and the least need in my Bible, already marked. Mm -hmm. And and they might come up with two, and then they misinterpret both of those. <laughs> or I might say, well, now, okay, you said we ought to be focused on what? Gun, oh, guns? Oh, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I don't think those let's, are in there. <laughs> let's read the Constitution. Now, let's read it all the way through. Let's read. Uh, uh, I mean, I know where the Second Amendment came from. That's a whole nother story, because that was one of those compromises that the South made put, it, put in there so that they could have slave patrols. It had nothing to do with, you know, the things people claim it has to do with today about everybody owning a gun, but, but be that as it may. So let's go through our founding principles. Establishing justice, providing for the common defense, promoting the general welfare, ensuring domestic tranquility, equal protection under the law. What what, what does that have, those little few things you're talking about, what does that have to do with these big items? And what we find is, yes, there are people that are adversarial and some are going to be that way. But I believe that there are more people who uh, are, are, are ready for the adventure of a third reconstruction. Now, I think too often our politics miss it. Just like the way we say, people say Trump won, Trump won, Trump didn't win, he didn't win the popular vote and 100 million folks at home. I wish Democrats would start talking about expanding the vote and start talking about so much about he had this great victory. The, the reality is so many people have been turned off, and many of them have been turned off because they're never talked to. They're never visited. Yeah. They're never lifted up. I know that's the case among many poor and low-wealth people across this country. And I believe in this moment, if... If I was saying to the to the Biden campaign one day, you know, I, I wish a, campaign, a candidate person would run for the presidency and simply say, you know, I'm not going to do a platform for this and that and this this person and that person, this group. Let me tell you what my health care uh, platform is. And they lay that out. 
Now, let me tell you how that's going to help black people. Let me tell you how that's going to help rural America. Let me tell you how this is going to impact people in Appalachia. Let me tell you how this is going to help gay people. Let me tell you how this is going to help uh, folk in the, 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 the Native American. You know, this is my banking policy. Now, let me break it down for you, disaggregate. I think America's ready for that. I really do believe America is ready for that. Well, you it know, may have to be you, Reverend, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I don't know if anybody, any of the other politicians are listening. I tell you well, what, we, I, well, I hope they do. I hope people not also. To me, not to me, but the, as I said to, 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 to Biden, they put it on the ad. I didn't ask them. They, I said, the hope is in the morning. And somebody said, you mean like in the morning, M-O-R, so no, in the M-O-U-R-I-N-G. If we would listen to the morning in the street hmm. and then build policies that answer those cries, you wouldn't have a problem with extremism taking over anything. In fact, a whole lot of the folk that have been following extremism would turn, I believe, and realize the ugliness in it. Because if folk have been have been given dirty water so long, there's only one answer to that. You can't give them a, just water a little bit less dirty because they, they've learned to get comfortable with dirty water. What you have to do is find a way to give them some clean water and that they can get a different taste in their mouth and in their spirit. And I think that's where we are right now. You know, we, I tell Democrats all the time, there's no need for you to try to be Republican light. You know, no need for you to try to just figure out what the blue wall is. What you've got to do is figure out what's the pain level in this country and speak to that pain in real ways. Not just what your consultants tell you, but in real ways. Because, you know, there's some consultants that tell candidates don't even say the word poor. How are you not going to say the word poor? You're 143 million people poor and low wealth. To me, that doesn't make any sense at all. It's a it's a recipe for political disaster. Instead, we have to speak to the whole of this country, the whole of this country. It's just like if people think folk were just in the street because of what happened to George Floyd, they're sadly mistaken. George Floyd was the spark. But people are are in the street because they feel like they're being suffocated. People are dying from COVID, 67% that didn't have to die. People are dying from economic trauma. The killing has been this, laid the, for The years. killing has been laid for laid, and they are saying no. And if our politics could match the morning, that's where the hope is. It's in the morning. It's not around the morning. It's not, it's not dismissing the morning. It's kind of like you don't build a stone of hope around despair. You build a stone of hope out of the mountain of despair. We are called to be a movement, Reverend William Barber. I mean, I, I, please, everyone, check the book out um, and and go to the Poor People's Campaign, poorpeoplescampaign.org um, to learn all about what Dr. Barber has, uh, Reverend Barber has been working on for the last three years you've been with them. Um, I got to tell you, I, I've, I've I've got some political heroes that I um, have admired in my state. I'm, 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 you're the first North Carolinian to be on uh, the podcast with me, oh, which, wow. is th- which is thrilling for me already. Um, <laughs> but Jim Hunt is one of my political heroes. Mm-hmm. Terry Sanford. 
Terry Sanford is another one of my political heroes, and I could not be more proud of the fact that Reverend Barber is also from North Carolina and is one as well. So I, this is this has been an absolute treat and joy for me, and I am I will I don't sing much anymore, but I am thinking of a song to sing um, at your church when I come out to Goldsboro, Please. where we can get back together um, and, and, and fellowship in person. We'll see. I might <laughs> you might have to fire me up a little bit. <laughs> more <laughs> to yeah. get me there but uh but i yeah. i cannot thank you enough uh for for coming on and talking to our audience um we are called to be a movement please check that book out we'll make sure their links are available um and links to poor people's campaign as well um are available uh dr barber thank you so much reverend barber thank you so much god bless you and prayers upon you and your people thank you and very much take Appreciate care now. to you too What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people... Hello, I'm Ricky Gervais. I'm Celeste Barber. Some people call me Beyonce. I'm Russell Brand. ...and asked them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the same chords now as I did when I was 14. From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app.